When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. This week's episode is a debate that Intelligence Squared held at the University of Chicago. The University of Chicago is one of the world's foremost research institutions, empowering individuals to challenge conventional thinking in pursuit of original ideas. Dedicated to free expression in a setting of diversity and inclusion, UChicago brings together a wide range of perspectives to forge new areas of study, making a positive impact for people around the world. You can follow UChicago, that's the letter UChicago, one word, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and learn more at uchicago.edu. Hello, everyone. I'm Marianne. So good to see you. What a great crowd here tonight. So we have a new political establishment. And we have issues each day. My newsroom is buzzing every day. Who would think that the White House press briefing would be command viewing every afternoon? (laughs) But it is. From the travel ban to the transgender bathrooms to the drug prices to the anti-Semitic actions to the number of women in Donald Trump's cabinet. Four out of 23. So tonight's debate could just not be more timely. Let's get started. And you are going to take part in this as well. Our topic, the political establishment has failed America. In a moment, I'll be asking you to vote on this motion using your cell phone. After that, we will hear the opening speeches of our speakers. And then I will announce, after their speeches, the results of that first vote. Then I'll be taking questions, so be thinking of your questions tonight, and we will encourage discussion and debate between the speakers. The speakers will then close the debate with a short summing up of tonight's topic, and then we will have one more final vote. So, here is our question. Get those cell phones ready. Has the political establishment failed America? Four against, or don't know. Here are your voting instructions. 
using your smartphone, go to www.menti, M as in Mary, menti.com. The code you need to enter, 151442, and cast your vote. For, against, or don't know. Has the political establishment failed America? I will announce the results at the end of the opening speeches. All right, let's get started. <clears throat> Our first speaker for the motion, Michael Eric Dyson. Michael is one of America's most distinguished public intellectuals. He is a professor of sociology at Georgetown University and an ordained minister. He just might hug you tonight. He has written prolifically on politics, race, religion, and music. His latest book is called Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America. He will be signing those books at the end of the evening, in which he urges whites to awaken to black suffering. Mr. Dyson, your turn. Thank you. Thank you so kindly, Ms. Ahern. Has the political establishment failed America? I think you know the answer to that. Hell yes. <laughs> Notice the question is not has government, qua government, failed America. We don't believe that. The permanent management of relations between citizens and the state and the efficient management of interactions between citizens and their representatives adjudicating competing claims about what is right or wrong, rival versions of the good that are asserted and established. We believe in that wholly and fully, but the political establishment, the particular administration of justice or injustice, the capacity of citizens to organize their dissent or their complicity or their consent with existing arrangements are a different matter altogether. We can love government, support what it means, the American democratic ideals that the founding fathers, though imperfectly, powerfully nevertheless articulated as the predicate for the expansion of the American dream and this rigorously presumed and pursued experiment in democracy. But this establishment this political establishment has failed America. And, and politics in particular are about what? The, the delivery of critical resources in a time of crisis to vulnerable populations. The, the delivery of critical resources in a time of crisis to vulnerable populations so that the state exists to serve the needs of the citizens, not to subordinate them. And we look at the political order right now, we understand that we are living in an infamous age of relegating the authority and the intelligence that are usually concomitant with the election of an executive chief to a toddler. The reality is that this political establishment has subverted the very principles that ought to be the predicate for our existence together as citizens. They have failed the people who most need the resources now. If politics, in one definition, is the delivery of critical resources to a vulnerable population in a time of crisis, who have they failed? They have failed women, 
We have a person in office now who believes in grabbing women's private parts and then blaming hip-hop culture for his errant ways. Please do not blame Biggie Smalls for your intemperate fits. Biggie said, some say the ex makes the sex spectacular. If it's all right with you tonight, we're loving. That's the pursuit of consent as the predicate for reciprocal engagement. (laughs) Women are reduced to persona non grata, continue to live beneath the level of many men who do the same job, 70-75% of a dollar of what a man makes. This is not solely or exclusively the if you will, the permission or the behavior or the responsibility of the state, but the state intervenes in such serious fashion and fails politically to observe the need to fight patriarchy, misogyny, and sexism. Who else are suffering? People of color are suffering, are being failed by this government. African-American people continue to be uh, within uh, the, the matrix of radical inequality, The job performance of black people does not measure their employment. The unemployment of black people has routinely tracked and then doubled that of white brothers and sisters. So we know that, again, the state may not be exclusively responsible, but some of the public policies that have been put forth in the name of political conservatism have undermined, subverted, and distorted the capacity of these citizens to exist freely within the marketplace. Who else are being, who, who, who else is being, if you will, disserved and failed? Muslim brothers and sisters and other religious minorities in America. We do not live in a Christian nation. This is not the Christian nation that, that the founding fathers imagined. They didn't imagine a Christian nation. So many of our political figures have appealed to Christianity to shrink the dimensions of our justice and to reduce it to a narrow parroting form of Christianity that is neither powerful nor secure for our human community. Who else is being underserved? Young people. <clears throat> Young people are being failed by this government. Young people are seen as the flotsam and jetsam in life, marginalized, dogged and dismissed because of their choices in hair or their earrings or their nose rings or their body staples or their ability to express dissent in American culture. They are demonized and dismissed and yet they are the basis for the brilliant, beautiful imagining of a different future in America. Who else has been failed? The white working class that voted overwhelmingly for an ostensibly blue class billionaire who has no understanding of or appreciation for the average white brother or sister in this nation. This president will not speak to you. The political establishment and order that he has organized around him is equally bigoted, vicious, insular, predatory, and incapable of imagining another human being being themselves or imagining themselves being somebody else. And so, my brothers and sisters, when we look at this political order, it has failed the American citizen, not only the white working class, but the average American citizen whose status will not be elevated, whose depth of commitment to our own government is not being encouraged because of the cynicism that has creeped into the relations between citizens and those who are their ostensible representatives. 
So we must declare that those of us in the embrace of the original ideals of the founding fathers and mothers must believe that this nation can get better progressively, but not without a serious dose of dissent, not without rejecting the political order that has failed to acknowledge the fundamental humanity of the citizens of the United States of America who are due the recognition of their citizenship by representatives who are not trying to impose arbitrary conceptions of democracy upon them, but listen to them, embrace them, and encourage them to live full lives under the public policies that are put forth, not public policies motivated by hate or resentment or keeping Mexicans out or banning Muslims or demonizing women or distorting young people or putting a knife in the back of the average American white brother and sister. Malcolm X says there's no such thing as putting a knife in my back nine inches, pulling it out six inches and calling that progress. This is not progress. In American society, you and I are fully participating in a drama, an experiment that goes back to the founding fathers. What did they hope? What did they inspire those who came behind them to do? To take seriously the intimacy of our associations and to be able to reproduce the beauty, the power, the virtue of American citizenship. And in doing so, to be able to embrace one another as brothers and sisters in a common effort to make this nation the best that it can be. Martin Luther King Jr. said that the ideals of American society prevail, but until there is hope, there will not be a matching of our ideals with our reality. And in the end, the great philosopher Sean Carter, who was just inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, said politics? No. Government? No. F government. People, government among themselves. The politics are for the people. That's why we must see that this government is strong only when we acknowledge that this particular political establishment has failed the ideals of not only us, but the great founding fathers and mothers who put them into order. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Dyson. Our first speaker against the motion, Eric Oliver, professor of political science here at the University of Chicago. Eric's interests include contemporary American politics, suburban and racial politics, political psychology, and the politics of science. He has recently completed papers about public support for conspiracy theories, whether liberals and conservatives name their children differently, and conducting research on the biological foundations of political cognitions. Professor Oliver. Thank you, Marianne. Thank you all for coming out. Um, it's a very hard act to follow. Um, <laughs> I was actually very nervous about this, and I spoke to my wife, Thea, and I told her about my nervousness. And Thea, she's really wonderful. She's very loyal and supportive. And she said, don't worry, honey, you're going to be great. And I said, but honey, I'm debating against Will Howe, and she knows Will, and Michael Eric Dyson, and she's seen him on TV. And she's like, well, I'm sure you'll do fine. <laughs> and then... Finally, I told her, but, but I'm going to be arguing against the proposition that the political establishment has failed America. And she said, ah, you're toast. <laughs> it's easy to appreciate her point. The proposition on the table is powerful and alluring. And therein lies the challenge and the problem of the affirmative side. 
For when thinkers as smart as Michael and Will suddenly find themselves agreeing with Donald Trump, something is clearly amiss. <laughs> Before I go any further, let me be clear about one important thing. Arguing against the proposition is not the same thing as celebrating the status quo. We are not here to say everything is hunky-dory in America. Whether it's issues of poverty, racial injustice, or environmental degradation, our country faces enormous challenges. But these challenges are not the proposition we have been asked to debate here tonight. The proposition we are debating tonight is whether the political establishment has failed America. This is a proposition, despite all its appeal, that we should be very wary of. For this proposition is emblematic of Donald Trump's worldview. Indeed, to endorse this proposition is to endorse Donald Trump's way of thinking. For the same type of thinking that asserts the political establishment is failing us also labels all Muslims as terrorists, that believes guns make us safe, or that assumes vaccines cause autism. It represents the same type of intuitions that tell us the world is flat, that all strangers are our enemies, and that our problems can be solved if we put our blind faith in a strong dictator. In short, the proposition represents the very impulses that are the enemies of liberal democracy. And in politics, the laziness of our intuitive thinking also gets us into trouble. It leads us to believe in myths and superstitions, to follow conspiracy theories and fake news, and for many folks, to think that a charlatan like Donald Trump is an honest and capable leader. The proposition we are debating tonight is emblematic of the laziness of our intuitive minds. Let me just give you an example. Take the subject, the political establishment. This is a favorite bogeyman of Donald Trump but conspir and conspiracy theorists around the globe. The very term presumes a small group of power gropers with godlike omniscience and a singular intentionality. In reality, such an entity does not exist. American politics are far more complicated and pluralistic than such a single stereotype. Washington has multiple centers of political power with varying degrees of influence that shift with the electoral tides. Power is not shared just between Congress and the presidency, but with the courts, the bureaucracy, and state and local governments. <clears throat> These myriad groups are rarely, if ever, in alignment. Think about it. Do Bernie Sanders and Marco Rubio really work in lockstep? Are lobbyists for ExxonMobil and lobbyists for Greenpeace really in cahoots? Do Fox News and Rush Limbaugh really have the same goals as the New York Times and the Huffington Post? And are all these groups, which clearly fall under the umbrella of the political establishment, equally culpable for all that ails us? Of course not. In truth, when people blame the establishment, they are looking for a convenient and mythical scapegoat. Remember, our complex, complex and multi-layered political system is shaped as much by historical forces and long-standing procedures as by groups of individuals. Its successes and failures must be viewed through the wide lens of history as much by the short view of contemporary politics. But most of the time, such a perspective is too hard for us to muster. So in, instead, we look to blame a singular entity. It's far easier to rail against a mythical establishment than to appreciate the safeguards of statutory regulations, the historical precedents of judicial review, are simply the challenges of ideological polarization within a system of divided government. This, of course, also makes the job for Jennifer and I much harder. For what we are asking you to do tonight is to transcend the natural tendencies of your own thinking. 
to look beyond the partisan or ideological impulses that lead us to fabricate such a thing as a political establishment in order to rush to sweeping conclusions like failing America. We must resist the impulse toward this type of thinking. Liberal democracy is the byproduct of the Enlightenment. It is the byproduct of reason. It relies on a bedrock of reason, deliberation, and dispassionate thought. It depends on counterintuitive notions about tolerating dissent and valuing compromise. The true enemy of liberal democracy is not the tyranny of autocrats. It is the tyranny of our own impulsive, error-prone thinking. Tonight, we offer you the opportunity to stand up for reason, to fight the cheap rhetoric of demagogues and propagandists, and to affirm our highest ideals rather than our base impulses. If you want to cast a vote in favor of the values of free speech, independent thought, and liberal democracy, then vote against the proposition on the table. Thank you. Professor Professor Oliver. Our second speaker for the motion, William Howell, <clears throat> professor of the Sidney Stein, in, Sidney Stein Professor in American Politics here at the University of Chicago. He holds appointments in the Harris School of Public Policy, the Department of Political Science, and the college. Mr. Howell has written widely on separation of powers issues in American political institutions, especially the presidency. He is currently working on a book provisionally called The Wartime President. It examines the impact of war on the power that U.S. presidents wield at home. Professor Howell. Has the political establishment failed America? So let's be clear. What the political establishment is requires some definition. Um, And it doesn't require us to think that it's a singular entity. And certainly saying that the political establishment has failed America does not require us uh, to, if we come out in the affirmative, to say that then we're casting our lot with Trump and Trump's way of thinking. It requires us to think critically, absolutely, about what that establishment is, what it does, and to think about a set of evaluative criteria we might bring to bear in order to adjudge its performance. So I want to do a little bit of that uh, for the time that I have. The case for this motion, it's worth noting, um, really has less to do, at least in the beginning, with argument, more to do with awareness. We don't need to be clever. We just need to be a little cognizant. Mm-hmm. What are we looking at right now? Well, for the first time in our nation's history, we just had a presidential election with both of the major candidates had disapproval ratings north of 50%. We currently have a former reality television show star with no political experience serving as president, wrecking havoc in D.C. Monday to Friday and on the weekends playing golf and when he's not attending to foreign crises from the public confines of the resort's dining patio. Hmm. The president's chief advisor is a conspiracy-minded leader of the alt-right. Betting markets currently have Trump's odds at making it through his first term in office at about 50%. At town hall meetings across the country, apoplectic citizens are tearing apart chastened legislators. In 1964, 77% of the American public trusted the government in Washington to do the right thing all the time or most of the time. Uh, Today, it's at 19%. 
74% of Americans believe that most elected officials put their own interests above the interests of the American people. All of 19% of Americans today believe that Congress is doing a good job. Washington, D.C. generally, and Congress in particular, is as it's always been, namely a feeding trough for special interests and lobbying groups. The ideological moorings of both of the major parties have all but disappeared. Republicans have become the party of nativists and plutocrats and a good deal of racists. And Democrats, who now are decisively the minority party in America, have lost their voice and vision for a whole host of issues from which they've once found energy, a sense of commitment to the poor, to the dislocated, and to the disenfranchised. And the dominant sentiments in American politics today are ones of anxiety, disillusionment, outrage, and disaffection. For this state of affair, you bet the political establishment is to blame. They're not uniquely to blame, and they're not equally to blame. But they have responsibility. And we need to be clear about the nature of that responsibility. For to do otherwise is to deny the possibility of leadership, to recognize that, we, that leaders in our republic have a role in structuring the kinds of debate we're going to have about our issues and offering reasonable, responsible solutions. Just as to deny, um, to suggest otherwise, is to deny the need for any kind of accountability. This mess that we have before us was not foisted upon us by the unruly masses. They may have responsibility too, but the motion before us is about the political establishment and whether or not they have responsibility. And there, clearly, the answer is yes. Look, there are a number of ways in which we might evaluate the labors of this establishment. Let me suggest a few. One is we might think about the extent to which they represent the views, the things that the political establishment does represents the views of a broader electorate. We can think about that. We can think about the extent to which the political establishment, establishment fulfills basic normative objectives like justice or equality. We might, too, think about the extent to which the political establishment acts in ways that are consistent with the expectations of our founders. And there's a fourth one, though, which is namely the extent to which the political establishment solves problems. And I want to talk about that last one. We can be critical about all four, but that last one, for me, really resonates. Let's think about the political establishment's track record on addressing a few issues. The climate. 2016 was the hottest year on record. 2016. Replacing 2015, which previously was the hottest year on record, which replaced 2014, which was the hottest year on record. The climate is warming. Ask yourself, what is the political establishment doing? What is Congress, the presidency, the courts, our, our, our major parties? What are interest groups doing about this issue? in a way that is responsible and that allows for us to actually move forward in a way that addresses this very real problem. The total national debt. Think about the debt now. Currently stands at $19 trillion. It's over 100% of GDP. We haven't seen these heights since World War II, and then we only saw them briefly. What are we doing about the debt? The tax code. Unbelievably complex. If you look at the tax code, in 1940, the federal tax code was roughly 500 pages in length. Today, it's over 75,000 pages long. Nobody would write a tax code from scratch like the one that we have. What are we doing about that? 
Social Security re- reserves are declining. Right now, the trust fund looks like it's going to be uh, depleted as early as within the next 18 years. What are we doing about that? For the last 40 years, income inequality has been increasing such that the gap between those in the top 1% and the rest of the population is greater today than it's been in a century. You don't need to buy into Trump's dystopian view of the world in order to recognize that we as a country face real challenges. And assigning culpability to those people who are in positions of power to do something about these problems is not to buy into a Trumpian way of thinking. It's to come to terms with the very real challenges that we face. Let's be clear, there's serious and legitimate debates to be had about the purposes of government, about what constitutes a solution to different problems, about whether or not the government ought to play any role in addressing certain kinds of problems. The truth of the matter is, though, that we're not having those serious debates. Or more exactly, political elites are doing a miserable job of structuring those debates in ways that create space for citizens to enter into, to draw information about, to meaningfully engage one another. Another kind of failure is a refusal to learn from and update past efforts to address a particular problem. I would venture to say that we aren't seeing the kind of return that we ought to see in issues involving like health and education, where we spend a great deal of money, and yet there's a lot of evidence of failure. What are we doing about that failure? Not a lot. There are a host of reasons why we don't solve problems. The parties today are as polarized as they've been in 40 years, um, excuse me, in a century, and they've gotten increasingly so over the last 40 years. There's a sense in which legislators have lost their way. There also is a way in which the structure of our political institutions, by constitutional design, gets in the way of our ability to solve problems. What are we to do about this? Well, we need to think about seriously about institutional reform. We need to think about how we might refashion our government in ways that allow us to meaningfully, artfully, responsibly solve problems. And so I would put before you, what are our political elites doing? What kinds of conversations are they offering about how we might refashion our government so that it can do a better job of meeting the very real problems that we face? And the answer is clearly they're doing close to nothing at all. What they do is they speak from their local parochial electoral concerns and they do, then they do close to nothing when it comes to actually meeting the challenges before us. Is the political establishment failing us? You bet it is. Thank you. Our final speaker against the motion is Jennifer Rubin. Jennifer is a journalist who writes the Right Turn blog for the Washington Post, offering opinion from a conservative perspective. She covers domestic and foreign policy issues and provides insight into the conservative movement and the Republican Party. Jennifer previously worked at Commentary, PJ Media, Human Events, and the Weekly Standard. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be back with Intelligence Squared. It's interesting that our opponents would give you an ahistorical, ethno- and America-centric view of the question. Because if you look at American democracy, American society, American economy, it is worse except for all the rest. And that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about a level of perfection, a level of human accomplishment 
that no society in the history of mankind has ever come as close to meeting as ours. And so the question before us, and I like that Will went back to the question because that's really the issue, is not should the political establishment be doing a better job or is there too much inequality? It's the political establishment has failed us. And when I hear that, I don't know if you caught it today or not, Mr. Bannon was at a gathering of his alt-right friends, and he said his mission is to destroy the administrative state. He's talking about the establishment. It's democratic norms, it's democratic institutions, it's a free and separate press, it is the America that does not work for some people, but works better than any other system, and that we will miss terribly once it's gone. And I do wonder why we aren't failing more if the establishment is so clever. After all, Mr. Trump got elected, and he was not the choice of the establishment, was he? We may objectively think that he is, but the establishment was what he ran against. So how can it be both Trump and the other guys? That doesn't make much sense. I also want to take issue with this sort of reverse notion that we live in the worst of all possible times and the worst place on the planet. We are not perfect, but when you give some perspective, which is what a university education should provide us all, perspective, historical setting, and facts, you get a different picture. So let's talk some facts. Will talked about health. 1959, life expectancy was 69.9 years. It's now 78. 1959, about 30% of our country lived in poverty. Now it's 13.5%. Donald Trump likes to tell us that we live in a war zone. It's not true. This is the sort of catastrophizing, the sort of false dystopia. In fact, it's about, the crime rate is about half of what it was in 1991. It doesn't mean there isn't crime. It doesn't mean that we have failed America. It means that we haven't eradicated crime, but we've done a pretty good job of reducing it substantially. We talk about the environment. You know, those dastardly elites um, are working on the problem. They did enter into the Paris uh, Agreement. And what's more, if you look at non-gas uh, greenhouse gases, we're at a point in human history that we've never attained since the beginning of the Industrial Age. Since the late 1970s, pollutants in the air have plunged. Lead pollution is down 90%. Carbon dioxide and sulfur dioxide has been reduced 50%. By nearly every standard, the water we drink, the air we breathe is better. Is it perfect? No. But these are the results of imperfect human efforts to make our society better. But I'll tell you, if you want real inequality, 
if you want real discrimination, if you want real poverty, go to a country that isn't a liberal democracy, that doesn't have the rule of law, that doesn't have market economy, like Russia. Life is much worse there. In fact, it's much worse just about every place on the planet. You see, unfortunately for us, there is an arrogance of the present. All of our problems, like a teenager, never have been suffered by anyone else before. Our experience is completely unique, completely terrible, the worst of all possible worlds. But we know that simply isn't the case. Progress is imperfect. We have deep, deep racial, ethnic divides. What the president is doing with regard to undocumented immigrants is obscene. And yet, we don't have institutionalized legal Jim Crow in this state. We have a court in Washington state that issued an order. How establishment, the court system, and it stopped the president in his tracks. He'll try again, but we have a court system that is designed to contain people like Donald Trump. I wish there were, was a golden era that we could return to or that we could go forward to or some place on the planet that didn't have these horrible elites and we could just, I don't know, make our own food and you know, sew our own clothes and all that kind of stuff. But in fact, a lot of what we're talking about is, I'm sorry, the inevitable result of complex, modern, globalized society. And there are trade-offs. When we elevate science, we lose faith. When we have independence and mobility, we lose connectivity. These are the ebb and flow of large historical forces that does not absolve us of choice and of responsibility, but it should empower us. It's easy to say things are terrible, they failed, throw out the system. But what are you going to get without it? You know, the Shakespearean line from Henry VI is greatly understood, killed the lawyers. Everybody thinks it's a dig on the lawyers. As a recovering lawyer, I know it's not a dig on the lawyers. What the point of the comment was is that once you take around away the architecture of society, of a, at that time, was the most civilized society, in the, uh, at least in the Western world, you're left with chaos. You're left with brute force. So careful what we should wish for about overthrowing democratic norms, democratic institutions, an independent press, a court system that does halt the executive. When we get down to it, it's only the arrogance of our own time that would lead us to believe that if we only wanted to, we could eradicate poverty. If we only wanted to, we could eradicate racism. These things are hard, but we are working on them. And we needn't absolve our spells of responsibility, hand over our lives to the man on the white horse and in the orange face, and let him tell us that there's a nirvana out there in which all will be well.
That's not how grown-ups in a liberal, small-L democracy behave. Thank you. All right, we've heard from our speakers. Here's the pre-vote before they spoke. As you can see, 65% of you here tonight thought yes. The political establishment has failed America. 24% has said no, and 11% don't know. We'll be taking another vote later this evening. But first, now, we'd like to get to your questions. Let's see. Number one, please. Hi there. So uh, my question for the panel is uh, this. It seems like in both sides throughout the course of the election, and certainly ongoing now, has defined each other as being part of the very establishment that they claim to be opposed to. Uh, and I could offer you know, plenty of examples, but I'm sure that'd be an exercise in futility for our panelists. So my question for uh, both sides is how exactly do you define an establishment when that very term is being used as a basically linguistic ammunition for both sides of the political divide? Michael, would you like to take that one? Sure. Oh, when you, it's an excellent question, by the way. Um, and it is true that the language has been deployed on each side, but as um, was said earlier, not equally. Um, th th there is a way in which, as you notice, our opponents, the resort to ad hominem. Slight, clever, curious, but there was no ad hominem on our side. We didn't resort to name-calling about, oh, you must clearly believe in dystopia and that Donald Trump is part of the very establishment that you abhor. So when you hear people on each side talk about establishment, you're absolutely right. And our last speaker, of course, queried as to how one might be able to criticize the establishment when Donald Trump was not part of the establishment. Oh, but I do disagree. Uh, the feces excreted into the diaper that his, his tweets um, was fed to him by Eric Cantor, John Boehner, Mitch McConnell, and other established figures like Paul Ryan who demonized poor people, who pathologized people who were not part of their particular ideological grind, who were not part of their party. It was much more subtle. It was much less obviously vicious. But that establishmentarian thinking fed and fueled the likes of a Donald Trump. Never forget, Frankenstein is the name of the doctor, not the monster. The doctor creates the monster. Donald Trump is, I hate to tell you this because I know many of you are not familiar with this. This is what people of color have been trying to tell you about whiteness. Now you got an example in Donald Trump. Donald Trump, Donald Trump is the face of a revulsively innocent, an immature, infantile refusal to acknowledge grown-up theories, as you have said, and the refusal to do so seems to be displaced from the very people and processes that produced him, but they're not. He is just the most idiomatic, extravagantly evil, some would say, I would say problematic expression of what is a deeply entrenched reality. So yes, sir, there are accusations of establishment on both sides, but I would argue Martin Luther King Jr., 
Jr., when he said, I'm against the political order, said that there's a higher order. There's a deeper moral ambition that we should encourage in each other. And those are the kinds of things that I have in mind when I speak about that. It doesn't relieve us of accusing each other of the establishment, but ultimately, I think sensitive, sensible, insightful citizens make a decision predicated upon their understanding of what really has been deeply entrenched and established and those things that are trying to get them in right order. Jennifer, maybe you'd like to counter that. Well, I don't think your question got answered because it was essentially, how can everyone be the establishment? How can this one be the establishment, that one be the establishment? We still have not heard the definition of the establishment. Is it the head of the FDA, the head of Greenpeace, Mitch McConnell, Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi? At some point, the term becomes meaningless because it is. We have people of various political views. And by the way, Donald Trump and Eric Cantor don't agree on almost anything. Um, so we can easily kind of slop it all together in one big mush and say the establishment. But who are we really talking about? And your question was perfect because by saying the establishment, it absolves individual citizens of making distinctions, of making choices. This candidate is a better candidate than this one. This policy is a better policy than that one. Participatory democracy, citizenship, requires that we not simply lump everyone together and say they're all equally bad. That's moral relativism of a really heinous type. If everyone is awful, then no one is good, and no one's really responsible for anything. And I think that's been sort of our point. All right, let's get some more questions from the group here. Do we have anyone up? We're going to go with five, and who else do I see here? Right down here, five and four, and we have one more over right here, one. So five, four, and one in that order. So number five, would you start first? Let's hear all three questions, and then we'll get some answers. Uh, it, it, it struck me when uh, what Professor Hall was talking about was uh, a lot of those problems can be traced directly to uh, movement conservatism or the logical extensions. And this isn't simply a, a norm or Norm Ornstein and man This is something that is the logical extension of decades and decades of what was post-war conservatism. Your question, please. The new right. So I guess the question is, is I'd, I'd like to hear the panelists talk about, is this not simply a failure of the political establishment so much as we have a rogue party that simply does not want to play by traditional rules of American politics. Mm-hmm. All right, thank you. And we said four. Would we have your question as well? Yeah. Well, my question is that even if we had so many progresses uh, in like life expectancy and so on, if people don't believe that the political establishment is working, if our state is working, electing people like Donald Trump, isn't that a failure in itself? Because if the liberal order cannot sustain itself, by electing people that are vehement against it, isn't it basically doomed to fail? And on the other side, if you're having so many progress, does it just qualify that we fail in particular areas, like some faith or uh, like tax code? Does it just say, well, life expectancy, the crime doesn't matter? Thank you. And we had number one. I think my question is similar to the, the one that the first gentleman had made mention of. 
And it's, you know, when you start to look at what happened in the financial crisis, there were a lot of norms and traditions that were broken that caused a lot of damage to a lot of people. But a lot of people did not go to jail. Actual laws weren't broken. When you look at what's going on in the White House now, or when you look at what's going on in the political society now, tax returns are usually by tradition turned over by presidential candidates, they're not. You have people right now who are in the White House talking to the FBI about, uh, about um, investigations that are going on. That is a long-standing tradition as something that we don't do in America. But did they really break any laws? And I think that is something you've got Americans who don't know who think laws are being broken. And those maybe should be. And your question would be? Why? Why? My, my question is, 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 there, is there a real understanding of the fact that America's got a lot of traditions, but you have people who are breaking those traditions, and we think they're breaking laws, and they're not? Thank you. So we, had, we talked about a rogue party. We talked about the liberals being doomed, the tax code. And then what about breaking these laws? Can you... You know, um, you've heard that story, chicken and pig walking down the street, saying, let's each make a contribution to breakfast. Chicken says, cool, I'll give up an egg. The pig has to give up his ass in order to have breakfast. Now, that's the establishment, the chicken. When all you have to give up is an egg... When all you have to do is to, to produce an external result, when all you have to do is to think critically and, and as the, the, our panelists on the other side here, musing without being honest about their own privileges, rooted deeply in a persistent whiteness in America that fails to identify with others who have come here, those others who are the pigs, who have had to give their lifeblood. So there's no false equivalency here, but you're the establishment, I'm the establishment. When Barack Obama becomes the first African-American person to occupy the Oval Office, ain't no equivalency between him and 43 other, excuse me, 44 other uh, men who have occupied that office. It was an aberration to be sure. So in one sense you could make the argument, look, the political establishment worked because Barack Obama was elected. What happens of course is what we fail to see. Barack Obama being the symbolic head of the government and becoming president doesn't remove prison industrial complex. Doesn't remove the fact that most black men will, uh, you know, one in four black men will be put in the prison system. Doesn't remove the fact that unarmed black men and women are routinely murdered by police. Doesn't remove the fact that black and brown kids are expelled earlier from school. So the reality is, is that the pig-like existence of those people who have to give up their lifeblood to prove a point about the durability of American democracy is not equal to people who sit around and rigorously, uh, think about the possibility of American democracy. That's why I said at the end of the day, the failure of America has been redeemed by the people it enslaved, by the women that it treated as sexist objects, and the very things, the very pigs that they cast aside have now redeemed the possibility of American democracy so that that failure has been rescued. The people who have been failures are too much of a failure to recognize it, and those who have success successfully tried to redeem the society have 
have not been acknowledged and have been marginalized. That's the argument here. So there's no false equivalency between, well, we're all part of an establishment. What are we to do? There are better times. FDR was better. LBJ was better when he had the society that looked out for poor people, including poor white people. Those times were better than others when we were entrenched in our own narcissistic preoccupation and nasal-gaving like we're doing now with this infantilized, infantilized presidency under a man who is incapable of acknowledging a scintilla of intelligence or a sentence structure that includes nouns, verbs, gerunds, participles, and the like. Jennifer, I think Michael just made our case for us. At times there's progress and at times there's regression. And simply because we elected someone that very few people in this room probably voted for does not mean the system or the establishment has failed us. Will said something very interesting. He said, essentially, if you think there's progress, don't vote for us. Yes, there's been progress. I'm a white Jewish woman. Would I want to have lived in America in 1780 or in 1880 or in 1960? I don't think so. And the fact that we have an ongoing, this is the story of America, by the way, the ongoing perfection, the ongoing story of wrestling with these age-old questions of inequality, of justice, of fairness, of inclusion. But the line is clearly going in one direction. We had a Supreme Court, pretty establishment, that outlawed separate but equal. We had a Supreme Court that said, no, we cannot discriminate against gay marriage. We do go in one way. Um, and in that respect, President Obama was right. We are on the side of history. And so progress is not steady. It's not assured. It's not without setbacks. But we are going in the right direction. If you want poverty, starvation, inequality, go live someplace else in the world or go back 100 years in American history. All right, let's get a couple of more questions. Hello, uh, my name is Patricia. Hi, everyone. Um, so I keep hearing in this debate the word forces, market, mar marginalization. And I want to make a connection between them. Or I want to ask if you guys see a connection between them. Why do the market forces allow white men to be at the top? with white women immediately after them, and then the rest of the population. I think that's a question that needs to be discussed if we're gonna talk about democracy. Because democracy is a, a, a rule of the people, correct? And the people aren't just white men and white Jewish women. Thank you. All right, our last question from upstairs. Uh, this question is for Mr. Dyson and Ms. Rubin, uh, since both of you are uh, in the media a lot. Um, how has the media apparatus on both sides of the political aisle played a part in the failure of the establishment to educate the populace? And do you think the failure of the establishment is more of a reflection of our own failure as citizens to understand our relationship to the government as envisioned by the founders? And shouldn't, we be, shouldn't this debate ask the question, have we failed ourselves? Thank you. Wow. We got a lot there. So... What about the forces, the market forces? And then finally, the media. What, what's happened there? Why don't we start? Well, we've been asked about the political establishment. 
we might think about whether or not we want to include the media as part of the establishment. There's a conversation to be had there. Um, we can also think about the ways in which we as citizens are culpable. That is, we play a role in electing people, obviously, who then, who then fill positions of power. And so we, too, may be culpable. And that, in that sense, we, too, may have failed America. But to say, to come out positively on the motion before us, has the political establishment failed America, is not to exclude those possibilities. We can say yes to those as well. Just as we recognize that there are some successes, just as we recognize um, that, that the failure has been sometimes peaked and sometimes not quite so peaked, um, all we've been asked before us today is whether or not the political establishment is, is meeting the challenges that we as a country face today. And I think there it's undeniable that the answer is no. And it is no not because of any one obstructionist group, but because we have a political system that's set upon itself. And we have political actors who are tending to their local parochial interests. And we have a set of um, moneyed interests who play a major role in dominating the kinds of deliberations that we have. And that this collectively means that we have failure. We have not attacked this question, though, Eric, the question about what market forces and why and <coughs> so far ahead of everyone else. Well, I mean, I, I think the answer to that is to be found in history. Uh, if you look at the history of this country, it was founded by a particular group of people from a particular group of Europeans. It was founded around their, you know, aspirations towards a market economy and their sense of tolerance of economic inequality and, in, in fact, their embracement of slavery. So if you want to sort of say, well, you know, why does our system have these inequalities now? Let's look back in time and sort of see, yeah, you know, the roots of that I mean, the, the patterns we see now directly are attributable to our historical past. Now, does this mean, I mean, I think that the challenge for us is to sort of say, well, does this mean our democracy is flawed? Is it inherently failed from the get-go? Um, I think as Jennifer eloquently points out, look at the progress that we've made relative to where we've come. Look at sort of the a number of people who, we've, who have been lifted out of poverty here. So, because um, she asked the question specifically, uh, I hate to uh, quote Jennifer over here, but you ain't answered the question because you didn't even repeat what she said. She said market forces favoring white men and then right after that white women. I can understand why you might not want to answer that um, because it would not, not your existential reality. I'm talking about now the fact that arguments about failure and success um, rest upon the fact that we think that the market is a blind distributor of resource and good that the market uh, makes decisions on competing goods, scarce resources, and determines their distribution based upon objective criterion. When the reality is the question, you know, really puts us uh, in, in, in square in the face of history, Jennifer, since you said you, want to be, you don't want to be a historical. Well, if we're going to be historical, um, we've got to, as Eric has tried to do there, we've got to acknowledge the fact that the market will always favor the people who determine what the market might mean. And that when you were sold on the market as an object of white fetish and curiosity and the extension of white economic power through slavery, black people were literally part of the market. 
They were sold on the market. Their testicles were examined. Their feet were looked at. Their bodies were reduced to persona non grata. So the reality is in the marketplace, the marketplace sold black flesh as a means of creating white wealth. That's not simply the past. When we look at the housing policy, the gentleman asked a question about, you know, Chicago. When we asked about causality, you can talk about Berkeley, you can talk about Hume, you can talk about John Locke, the three figures who talked about causality and cause and effect. But at the end of the day, the causality there has to be this. White supremacy has operated to privilege and advantage some people and deprivilege and disadvantage others. That's just a fundamental fact. And it's not simply back in those days of slavery, housing markets right now, the distribution of goods, the housing bubble. Why is it the disproportionate numbers of African-American and Latino people lost their wherewithal? The greatest bleed off of black and brown wealth happened when the housing crisis occurred. So my point is there, there's, there's not a, a kind of a incidental relationship between the two. It's deliberate. And again, I'll end by saying this. I absolutely agree with you on this point, that it is not simply a heroic, iconic figure from the outside who worked. There are also inside people, but they're, they're not all invisible, right? Think about Lyndon Baines Johnson, who really collared some of those, you know, white racist senators and forced them to do the right thing in concert with Martin Luther King Jr. I would never argue against that. But what I'm arguing is that the failure to acknowledge the humanity of those people, to allow the market to determine their association to an American democracy was a problem. And only when it was challenged, I'm not saying it wasn't extended from within, but only when those brave souls, and it's not just a few, the masses of people challenged the hegemony of a white supremacist logic that made not only their state better, but they made America better. Martin Luther King Jr. didn't just do something good for black folk, he revolutionized the American democracy to make it work better for everybody. All right. So thank you to all of you. Did we persuade, did all of our folks here tonight, were there any minds persuaded? Was there a change? Was there a a swing percentage? I believe we started out, it was 65% but at the final. Here we go. So the pre-debate, 65% had said yes, 24% had said no, and 11% don't know. And now our final vote. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well. I think we killed you. (laughs) Yes is 63%, no is 24%. And we have moved those who don't know. <laughs> I don't know how you look at it, but perhaps they're kind of with them. Uh, maybe. I don't know. We'll have to decide. No. But <laughs> that ain't what it's We want to thank the speakers. <laughs> we want to thank the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics and, of course, Intelligence. No, and just a moment. Shit. By 20 points for 10. We'd like to let our panelists leave. <laughs> of course, Michael Eric Dyson will be uh, signing books in the back in the lobby. Thank you all for being here. Let's let our panelists get out of here first. And thank you very much. What an enjoyable evening. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. 
The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.